everybody merrily, merrily, sing them your song. Rolling along, rolling along, rolling along, rolling along. Life is swinging, skies are blue and bells are ringing. Every day I wake up singing. Look at me, I'm rich and happy. But us old friends, much to discuss. Old friends, here's to us who's like us. Damn few. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, February 24th, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books and the writer of a new play called God Shows Up, which just finished up its run at the Playroom on West 46th Street this week. Peter, how did it go? Well, it looks like we may be moving to the Actors Temple. We shall see, we shall see. But my producer says it's 90% set, and that's an A where I went to school. So I hope that it turns out to be true. But, um, yeah, uh, pretty well. Of course, um, (laughs) anybody who's seen it who comes back will see a substantially different second act. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very pleased, and I'm very, very grateful to producer Eric Krebs and to director Christopher Scott and to the cast, Christopher Sutton, Lou Libridge, Tory and Maggie Bofills, who did tremendous work. So God love them all. There's a suite in heaven reserved for all of them, which I hope they won't use for about 75, 80 years. But anyway, <clears throat> yes, uh, they worked very hard and we all got along very well. Great. I'm so happy to hear that uh, it was such a positive outcome. His uh, Peter's columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning, and we also uh, might be expanding upon that bio, as we'll talk about a little bit later here in the uh, broadcast. Um, Before we start, just a uh, reminder that uh, you can see in Philly, Boston, or Baltimore, Peter Felicia and Josh Ellis are getting together on Saturday, March 2nd at 5 p.m. at the York Theatre Company, uh, right before or right after Lolita, My Love, uh, playing at the York Theatre Company. And uh, Peter, tell us about Philly, Boston, or Baltimore. Well, what I will tell you is that Josh Ellis gets top billing because it was his idea. Mm. And he's the one who alphabetically, no matter if you go by first name or last name, comes first. So uh, bless Josh Ellis for coming up with the idea because we have been friends since 1987. And um, we've often talked about our adventures. Uh, he grew up in Philadelphia. I grew up in Boston. But we did make our way to Baltimore every now and then, especially during the 10 years that I was uh, involved with a woman down there. Um, <clears throat> and uh, we also saw a lot of shows um, in other places, too. I saw Sugar in Toronto. I saw in Washington. Um, I wound up seeing uh, Pacific Overtures in each of the three cities the original production played. So we're just going to talk about the highs, the lows, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And um, we'll do it for an hour and a half uh, after, as you say, Lolita, my love, which Josh saw in Philadelphia and I saw in Boston. (laughs) 
Excellent. And so you can see in Philly, Boston, or Baltimore on Saturday, March 2nd at 5 p.m. Uh, as part of your ticket for Lolita, My Love, either before or after, as I mentioned. Uh, and you can also just go to that uh, as well. We'll have a link to that in the show notes so you can get more information and purchase a ticket to uh, either way you want to go. So, Peter, uh, did did was there and did you get a chance to see the out-of-town tryout for Merrily We Roll Along? There was none. It only played previews, uh, and 44 of them, in fact. 44 previews and 16 regular performances. Yes, after the reviews came out on November 17th, it was gone by November 28th. And it was the smartest thing they could have done to close it right away because essentially they were saying, what? You think we made a mistake? Okay. We're sorry. We'll go away. Thank you anyway. Uh, And immediately everybody had to fix it. You know, every director <laughs> in the country said, oh, I can do it. I know what's wrong. And uh, as a result, uh, this production at uh, the Laura Pell's Theater is the 13th I've seen. Um, and that's right up there with uh, a number of um, shows that uh, I have seen along the way. And I, I, it may even set the record for um, the most number of times I've seen a show in the time period because we are talking 37 years suddenly since that original production. And um, that's a pretty good record, 13 for uh, 37. I mean, that's like one every three years. Uh, Though I did see the original production twice uh, at the very beginning, the first preview, and at the very end, the closing. Anyway, I think this one's spectacular, spectacular. And um, it's really amazing that um, Paul Coffey comes out. He's one of the actors and uh, before the show starts, and he announced that we're going to see Merrily We Roll Along and just the name uh, spurs hearty applause. You know, um, uh, I wonder where you people were in 1981 when Merrily really needed you, but that's another story. <laughs> um, what really happened, of course, to make the show um, even more enigmatically and uh, powerfully wonderful uh, in the ears of the people who were um, thinking about it was, of course, the original cast album, which is a very good one. And we found out the Sondheim score was better than the scene to first hearing, but isn't that always the way? So, um, and I do believe that's the reason why um, when the, the album came out on March 1st, which is not long before the Tony nominators had to go to work. And um, they did give um, Sondheim a, a nomination. He did not win. Mari Essen won for nine. But uh, he did get a nomination. I dare say it wouldn't have happened if that cast album didn't come out. And there was talk about that cast album not coming out. But Hal Prince said, you better do it. And uh, indeed, they did. So. What do we have here? We have a show with six people. Six people? Are you crazy? My God, the original had so many people. No, it doesn't matter. You know why? Because most of the scenes in Merrily, most, not all, of course, most of the scenes in Merrily take place um, with three people. Um, And we're talking about, of course, um, Franklin Shepard, who's a composer who becomes a movie mogul, and his friend Mary, who uh, becomes um, a novelist, a critic, um, and uh, Charlie, who uh, is a lyricist and apparently librettist and apparently playwright because he does eventually win a Pulitzer Prize for one of his plays uh, that he wrote without Frank. So we are talking about two successful people here in Frank and Charlie, but they do go their separate ways in more ways than one. And as a result, what starts out as a wonderful friendship that um, everybody thinks is going to last forever doesn't. It doesn't at all. Um, Now, the thing that so many people were flummoxed by was the fact that it goes backwards in time. And this was such a smart decision. And again, we have to credit George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart 
for coming up with the idea because they wrote the play in 1934 on which this musical is based. Well, anyway, um, going backwards is so smart, and especially it must have really resonated with Sondheim, who at 17 years old was a gopher on the original production of Allegro, the Rogers of Tampa Stein show, the only flop among their first five shows. Um, I even did some um, some uh, math, and I found out that the first five shows, um, the four that were hits, and we're talking about Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, and The King and I averaged 1,568 performances, while Allegro managed 315. Now, what's the reason for this? Well, Allegro was the story of a man who starts out um, at birth. We see him at birth, and he goes till 35, and he's become a doctor, and he's very unhappy in the way he has chosen to become a doctor, and a lot of this has to do with his wife. So the show gets more bitter as it goes along, and this really becomes a terribly hard uh, pill to swallow. So going backwards solves that problem, because we start off with cynicism and unhappiness and betrayal and all that. And we go all the way back and see them when they're young and bushy-tailed and lovely, and they believe that um, everything is going to work out for them. Uh, it's their time. Uh, Our Time is the name of the song that ends the show. Beautiful Sondheim ballad, one of his best. And um, so I think it really solves the problems that Allegro uh, could not solve. So um, now we're in a the theater with 474 seats. And 474 seats is about a third the size of the Alvin Theater, where uh, the original, well, now it's the Neil Simon, but where the original played. And 474 may very well be the number of people who were in the Alvin during that period of time because hmm. the show just didn't sell. Or it may be the number of people who walked out um, during uh, any given show because Daisy Prince especially said uh, it was just horrifying to look out and see so many people getting up and walking out. And uh, But, you know... As the first lyric of the show goes, yesterday is gone. And as a result, we now have this production, which I think is really, really terrific. And I have never um, heard uh, like it was done with so much intelligence. A woman named Jessie Austrian does it. So much intelligence. I'm telling you, you can sense that she feels every syllable. Um, and I think that's really quite wonderful. But as I say, most of it has to do with the fact that the, the scenes don't involve very many people. Um, now, in the opening scene, you do have um, the girlfriend – uh, who Emily Young plays with uh, Brio because what's happened is Frank left his first wife, Beth, for Gussie, and now he's playing around with Meg, and Gussie is none too happy about it, believe me. So it's at a party. So you say, well, wait a minute, who are the other party guests? Well, the other two party guests are the other two people who are going to be ultimately Joe, the producer, and Charlie, the collaborator. But because it's the first scene in the show, we don't know that, and they serve as party guests, so there's no problem there at all. Uh, you might say, well, wait, wait, wait. No, there's the scene at the end of the first act where Frank and Beth um, are officially divorced. They come out and they meet photographers. Now, it's a very clever thing here with um, Noah Brody, the director, has done. He simply sets it in an apartment. I mean, after all, they could have that discussion there. It doesn't have to be in front of the courthouse where, where Mary sings Now You Know, which is very plaintive in this. It, it, it accelerates as it goes on, but it's very plaintive, which is a very good um, idea to have on this. So that's um, really good as well. Um, <clears throat> um, I love the moment. Love the moment when Gussie is appearing in their musical, musical husband, and singing Good Thing Going, and you have two chorus boys in the back. I'm not going to give away what happens, but what I will say is if you take a look at those two chorus boys, something happens uh, very quickly afterwards that is such a smart 
thing to do, and it involves costuming. So um, I'm going to be perfectly um, enigmatic about that. Um, I'm telling you, by the time you get um, to what is the second act, though there's no intermission in this, in this production, you're not even going to be bothered for a tenth of a second that there are only six people uh, on stage. It doesn't matter whatsoever. Um, it is funny that um, when uh, Gussie approaches Frank early uh, in their career, meaning late in the show, uh, that um, she talks about, we want you to write a show for us, um, one that's fun, opulent, Broadway. Well, Merrily is far more f- than mere fun um, and on a unit set, hardly opulent, but um, maybe it's best home is off Broadway with a little show can um, pack a big wallop. So um, I think that's really very effective. Anyway, uh, I'm a big fan of this production. Um, I hope it moves. I guess it or stays uh, in that space. I guess that's going to be harder because certainly the review that really counts from Jesse Green was not a good one at all. Uh, but we're not on the same page in this production, and I thought it was tremendously inventive, and I would love to see it again. Peter, how many times did you see the original? Just twice. And I wouldn't have traded that for the world because what, you know, a lot of people, I mean, there was a a club that used to go every Monday night. Mm -hmm. uh, And, uh, uh, but anyway, no, I wouldn't change that for the world because seeing that first preview, the very first preview when the curtain goes up and everybody's so excited, uh, all those kids on stage in their graduation robes. And by the way, they return to the graduation image here. Um, But anyway, um, in the graduation room, so, so happy. So, and then six weeks later, whatever it was um, to see the curtain go up and see those same kids, my one um, because one was fired uh, and to see them so devastated the same kids but different faces you know I mean uh, the thing they'd been bragging about for a year and a half and it took a long time for the show to get on because on time is a notoriously slow writer uh, anyway uh, to see them just devastated knowing that uh, it was over and that Monday morning was unemployment was really something so um, you know I have to say um, I really felt in that original production uh, that they fixed it. Uh, I really don't think there's a problem with this show. I think it's a very good musical. It moves me tremendously. Uh, I was in tears. I know that very few people feel that it really worked uh, in that original production. There was so much complaints about um, the way the set looked, and uh, there was so much complaints about the costuming where people had um, their names on T-shirts for a while. Mostly people said because you didn't know who the hell anybody was. Um, I, it was done very wittily. I mean, for example... The T-shirts in the in in our, uh, the nightclub scene, uh, they were the waiters waiting on people, and their T-shirts said "unemployed actor." I mean, you know, that's funny. So as a result, um, I, I I I have loved this show almost from the start. And what I mean is, I didn't like the first act of the first preview because everybody was so nasty to each other. Um, but the second act, when everybody was nice to each other, boy, that hit the spot for me. I can watch people be nice to each other forever. So, um, But then I, I, I certainly became attuned to it. And I do believe they changed a good deal of the first act. I still remember in the first preview, Frank coming into his uh, apartment uh, wearing a beard because that was trendy. And on the couch, there were pop arty type um, cushions um, made like Butterfinger candies uh, with that type of wrapper. Um, and of course that went by the time um, I saw it again. But, uh, but I have really, aside from the first hour, I have always loved this show. So if you don't like Merrily and you think there are problems with it, you probably won't uh, have your mind changed here. But if you do like it, um, then indeed you're going to find out that uh, this one really has so much imagination behind it. And every challenge that this posed with with six people, I think has been met beautifully. 
So um, I, I really enjoyed also this this merrily, and uh, I had commented to some friends that uh, I didn't think think that a lot of the criticism and you mentioned Jesse Green uh, was. was it, it it didn't make any sense to me. Uh, I, I felt that this show has a heart and was pulled off very well with the six people. Um, I wonder if Brantley's going to go see it because it's gotten ah, so much buzz ah, and we'll ah. have a second review of this. Well, you know, that's uh, a variation of what happened in the late 60s when, uh, indeed, uh, Stanley Kaufman and um, and and then um, Clive Barnes and um, even, I think, even to the Richard Eater era, um, Walter Curry used to review shows on Sunday and uh, and he uh, would give his opinion. So you get two reviews. So maybe we'll, we'll go back to that. I, I, I'm going to make a couple of criticisms here, though. Um, one is the fact they've added a scene that really comes from the original play. I have no issue with that whatsoever. None. It's a terrific scene. And what it is is uh, newlyweds Frank and Beth are living and having trouble with her parents. Um, and um, so Frank and Beth are dead broke. And needless to say, that doesn't please Beth's less than supportive mother or her highly critical father. Uh, her doubting and his mocking serves the show well because it sets up why Frank would from then on be so obsessed with success and money. That's what's really impressive about the scene. But at this point, Beth is on their side, too, partly because they now have a baby. So um, that's fine. But what we do need is a few lines that um, have to be there because as soon as this scene is over, suddenly we get into the Bobby and Jackie and Jack scene where Beth is a performer. And there she is giving her all. She's happy and she's performing. And Wait, wait, wait. Where did this come from? So what we need in that scene where they're having trouble with the in-laws is uh, for, um, for Frank to say, but honey, honey, you were a performer. You wanted show business, too. You know what it's like. Um, you can understand how I feel, can't you? Then we would know why, second later, she's on stage giving a song her all, uh, which, by the way, um, Brittany Bradford does very, very well. So um, I do think that should be added. Uh, and that's about as much as I'm going to criticize this production of Marilyn. Well, that points up the you know the the continuing saga because I think from the beginning everyone has recognized that there are some things in Merrily at least that are so good that everyone keeps trying to fix it, you know, over and over again, and and it's completely understandable. And I, uh, you know, I mean, I to me, I think maybe the. Maybe it will turn out that the best one I ever saw was the 20th anniversary reunion concert, only because of the emotional uh, resonance of it. Although they didn't do the, <laughs> they do the book, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that little item that they didn't happen to do the book. But um, it's uh, – yeah, I mean it's amazing. That thing that you said about – the comparison to Allegro, Peter, that that in itself is so interesting because, of course, some people feel that that the opposite is is true, and and that because these people are so cynical when we meet them and so unpleasant, as you said, you know, it was your initial impression of the first act that it's very it can be very difficult to invest in them long enough uh, till they start getting nicer and you start to see why they turned out this way. Um, so that, I think a lot of that is just, um, I think a lot of that comes down to direction and performance because,
because you really have to, um, you know, somehow uh, engage with the audience, even though all this horrible stuff uh, is happening in the first, i.e. last scene. Well, another factor here is that uh, in that opening scene, uh, the party is because Frank has had a new movie. And originally, <laughs> the movie was highly criticized by everybody at the party. They thought it was terrible. In a rewrite, suddenly it's a hit movie, and they're singing the song That Frank, which is not a bad idea to have people sing about him and talk about how uh, terrific he is. And with a <laughs> terrific sometime lyric um, of his work is great got a wife who is gorgeous and a son who's straight. I mean, the, in, in this world, you know, I mean, that is not necessarily a given. I mean, I do b- believe that in most of America it is a given, but nevertheless, in this world, it isn't. You know, the fact that he has a straight son is something that uh, would uh, ultimately please many parents. So um, I think that's a very funny lyric. But uh, surprisingly enough, um, they go back to um, rich and happy in this production, um, which mm. is kind of interesting. So, and that's a little more acidic. But you know, I think it's in the second scene when we hear Mary sing "Like It Was," when she talks about how she wants things like it was, and she's not just talking about the friendship; she's talking about cities and people were nicer and all that kind of business, which is true. And so we can identify with her feelings, right. uh, those of us who have been around a while. So even though it's it's a sad, melancholy song that really does um, have a, a lot of technically criticisms in it, she says it with, with such um, sadness yeah. and uh, that we do feel for her, you know, even though we saw her behaving terribly in the scene before. So I, I'm... <laughs> It's it's a show that will always, always, always get a lot of controversy. and But I'm telling you, if it did with, uh, let's say, Big did, the musical Big in 1996, run 193 performances with not much um, buzz to it and uh, houses that you know were just struggling and losing more money and all that kind of stuff, I don't think people would be as interested in it because they would have had so many chances to see it and say, oh, I don't like it. But I really do believe that that 16 performances was the smartest Thing they could do. Let me uh, throw a few more things in here before we move on. Uh, the running time is an hour 45 with no intermission. Uh, and with that type of format, I also felt that the pacing was very uh, – it was it – was, I, I don't want to say rushed, but I would say that every, every, it was very quick – and the, yes, and the only time that it was a problem for me was not a day goes by. I felt like the tempos were rushed on that. Um, and I, but it's I, a very but, different take on yeah. uh, not a day goes by at, at the beginning. I mean, uh, usually we have um, a very weepy, and understandably so. I mean, you know, many of us who have gone through breakups certainly have cried, um, and that's the way it's been. But in this production, you're going to see anger ferocious anger which you've all felt too when when uh, our relationships have broken up so uh so it's a it's a different interpretation so it isn't so much rushed i think as angry and i think that's what's going on there and i think they wanted that also we don't want to we don't want to upset the sondheim acolyte so i think peter i think the actual lyric is yesterday is done is it yeah oh okay i always thought it was gone all right well, uh, it's got the the, the two D's uh, is something that sure sure yeah. sure sure. So um, uh, uh, I guess Michael will have to you'll have to weigh in on this after the fact. But maybe uh, can we look forward to a cash recording of this, Peter? Do you think? 
I, I would don't. Uh, I, I don't mostly because uh, for one thing, a lot of people have criticized the voices, which didn't bother me at all, at all. Um, but for another thing, we do have a lot of Beverly recordings. <laughs> for, I mean, prorated. I don't think there's ever been a show um, that has as many recordings for, uh, I mean, it, it, the only challenger is anyone can whistle, which ironically enough is a Sondheim show, which ran nine mm-hmm. performances, at least two. <laughs> Recordings I know of, and there's one in the can that's um, I think John Yap has done that um, has been there for probably 20 years that he hasn't been able to um, I think financially uh, release. But um, but there are quite a few early recordings out there, and um, and it's always worth hearing no matter which one it is. So the question about the cast recording, and I do agree with you. I had no problem with the voices. I, re- I really enjoyed them, and I think it'd be fine to have a cast recording. Is that uh, with this new take on Merrily and a six-person cast, would this be a good show to license? Well, it ha- uh, yeah, whether or not you mean this very version. This but- version, so they can, so, uh, you know, regional community theaters can do a six-person Merrily. Um, I wonder if um, one needs to even um, have a new version, uh, I guess because of that new scene you do, but uh, it will be interesting what Music Theatre International um, does. Uh, I may have some information on that as time goes on, given I do a column for them every Friday. But uh, yeah, I think I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. There are a lot of alternate versions of shows um, mm-hmm. that you could do. Uh, Charlie Brown and Anything Goes are two of them um, that I can think of that you can uh, certainly do one or the other. So who knows? Maybe there'll be I'm telling you, you can't kill this show with a stick. I mean, it just keeps coming back, and I'm delighted that it does. The quote-unquote news scene may be in public domain. Uh, oh, 34? Yes, boy, the, the, the years are going by, aren't they? <laughs> All right, let's uh, clip forward, and we'll revisit Merrily after Michael gets a chance to see it. Um, but, Michael, you did get a chance to get down to um, <laughs> uh, New World Stages, and hopefully the uh, the street was not on fire and blowing up when you went uh, oh, yeah. to see. Uh, and was that a – did the play goes wrong cause that street fire? <laughs> no, but I – all right, let, let's give a little background for people who don't know what we're talking about. There was uh, a situation where uh, I believe more than one manhole cover yeah. – on the street explode uh, blew off and I, I actually just briefly saw uh, not even a video but just a, a photo of uh, like flames shooting up from from one of them uh, so I don't know what happened and I don't think it ultimately actually affected the theater but it was right outside of it so they um they apparently, uh, if, uh, if if my information is correct, they evacuated all of the – it's five theaters, isn't it, in, in New World yeah, Stages? I think so. Uh, yeah. They evacuated them all, and I believe um, that the, the shows were ca- – yes, the shows were canceled that evening. They didn't mm-hmm. yes. make people wait and then bring them back in because I guess it took a while to figure out what was going on. And uh, actually, I live around the block there, so I can tell you that the street was closed off for most of the entire next day. Uh, well, they, who, you know, they were working on fixing whatever went wrong, but the, you know, uh, nobody got hurt, thank God. And so, uh, w- what's hilarious is that when I, when I went to see, uh, the, the play two days later, because I wasn't scheduled for that night when all that happened. Uh, but I went two nights later and I, and I ran into, um, one of my colleagues, David Finkel, who was there with, with his friend. And they said that they were there on the exploding manhole cover night. And at first they thought the audience was being punked. 
mm-hmm. because of yeah, <laughs> because because that. of the nature of the play that goes wrong it, in which everything goes wrong. Uh, this uh, f- for those of our listeners who did not see the show during its its very healthy Broadway run. Um, it is about a uh, production of a uh, a drama society in, in England of a murder mystery uh, that uh, is called The Murder at Havisham Manor. And it's just the most superb physical comedy you could ever see because every single possible thing and, and can go wrong in terms of people missing addresses, forgetting lines, uh, scenery falling down, um, uh, lighting cues being screwed up and, and, and everything else. Uh, it's, um, this, I'm so happy that it has moved to new world stages. And I think, you know, I think it could be there for years because uh-huh. the night I went, it was packed and I have to, tell you guys no exaggeration i think it may be the most laughter i've ever heard in a theater in my entire life Uh, maybe the only thing that pops to mind is another example is the producers uh but this was just the audience was enraptured by this show and from the beginning it just uh i think maybe there was some special magic that happened the night that we went because Every every single bit got a laugh, and 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 there, there were hardly moments where people weren't laughing. Uh, it it was just it was just huge. Most of the cast, I think, uh, I recognize one person as a holdover um, from Broadway. But we have Ryan Vincent Anderson, Matt Harrington, Chris Lansley, Brent Bateman, Bartley Booz. <laughs> What a wonderful name, Bartley Booz. Uh, Ashley Race, Matt Walker, and Bianca Horn. And I, you know, I brought a friend of mine, David Dean Hastings, who teaches stage combat <laughs> at AMDA. I thought he that would be a good person to bring. There isn't that much stage combat in it, but there is one bit with swords. And then there are other places where people have to smack each other in the face uh, and get knocked out. So I thought he would appreciate it. And um, he absolutely loved it. Uh, he, he loved act one. And then I said to him, well, wait till you see what's coming. And when it got to that point, um, I, and I don't want to give too much of a spoiler, but where part of the set collapses and and two of the actors are like basically hanging off of it. He he just was astonished. I mean, his entire body, he went, oh, my God. And he couldn't believe it. And, and, and neither could I. I mean, I saw that happen on Broadway with two other actors. But um, it astounds me that, that they do that every night. It, it really – this cast is, is incredible. Uh, and I, anyone who's ever cast in this show has to be at the top of their game. They have to be superb physical comedians and have the, the, the most acute timing in the world. Um, this is a laugh riot. And if you haven't seen it, please go. And if you have seen it, I would say go again, because I don't know, I, as much as I loved it on Broadway, I, I would say it was like about three times as much on this particular evening, partly because the audience was in, they were lit in theatrical heaven. It was incredible. Oh, that's so great to hear of a successful transfer. Thanks. All right. So Peter and Michael both got a chance to get over to Signature to see, by the way, Meet Vera Stark by Lynn Nottage. So uh, Peter, get us started on this. 
Well, uh, when it starts um, in a beautiful Art Deco set, by the way, um, you really think that everybody's overacting. Um, you yeah. see this um, uh, pretty white lady looking very Jean Harlow-ish, uh, if you've seen the famous photo of her in the white dress, um, and uh, her maid. Um, and they both seem to be, wow, laying it on very thick. But what they're doing is rehearsing because uh, the woman um, expects to be cast in a, a major motion picture and Vera Stark, the maid. Uh, thinks she has a chance too and uh, after all some big executives are going to be coming over uh, the head of the studio as well as um, a, a foreign director who has his own ideas about what should happen and um, we we do see another um, maid come in um, and uh, <laughs> uh, and yet another person who wants to be in the movie as well uh, three women who were all uh, fighting to be in the picture and uh, they're not going to have much trouble getting into the picture actually the way it uh, turns out so we do actually see some of the movie i mean we do see a black and white movie uh, projected on the, uh, a screen for quite some time and we do see that this uh is the picture that really helped to establish vera stark uh as as an actress she eventually would get an oscar nomination not necessarily for this one but she did uh and that's fine okay so the first act ends and the second act takes place many many moons later and as a result we're basically at a, a one of those film conventions where people discuss film, uh, sometimes perhaps maybe a little too um, intently, you know, or intensely, uh, and maybe we do here too. So guilty as charged. But anyway, um, certainly Lynn Nottage's uh, spoofing uh, the people who take um, movies tremendously seriously, and maybe movies that don't deserve to be taken seriously. Um, it's one thing to examine Citizen Kane, but it's another to examine The Bell of New Orleans, which is neat as the name of the picture that we have here. So, well, they do show a clip, but it's not a clip. It's actually done live of a talk show uh, back in the uh, 70s, the early 70s that Vera Stark was on. And um, and Gloria Mitchell, who was the the white actress, uh, the Jean Halloween type actress, uh, comes on too. And ironically enough, <laughs> the scene that happens with them is not unlike the scene that happens uh, in Merrily We Roll Along, where Charlie Kringis um, criticizes uh, Franklin Shepard Inc. in a um, uh, in the talk show setting. So it is very reminiscent to that for a few minutes, but. Whoa, what a performance by Jessica Francis Dukes as Vera Stark. Because as terrific as she is in the first act, I mean, you do see from her face that it is the same actress. But I'm telling you, the performance is so different because now she's aged. And she ages tremendously well. She's very Mabel Mercery now. And, um, you know, wearing a grand dress. And she isn't the um, shrinking violet that she was in the first act when she had to, uh, you know, really toe the line because she was was the maid, although always sneaking in some um, little bit of ambition uh, here and there when she has the chance. But here she is now the grand dame. And yet we do hear that she wasn't the grand dame for the rest of her life either. And there's a lot of controversy about what really happened to Vera Stark. So um, it's it's a bit of a mystery uh, as well. Uh, you can make your own conclusions as to who's right and who's wrong. But believe me, as much controversy as there is on the set of this TV show from 1973, I believe it is, there's also a great deal of bickering among the three panelists who are watching the movie and are running the movie co um, convention. So um, I, I won't say that uh, this is my favorite Lynn Nottage play, 
but um, and I, I, I won't even say it's as funny as Fabulation was some time ago. Signature Theater, of course, gets its name for the fact that um, it does deal with playwrights for a season. Um, and um, this is the season for Lynn Nottage. So we had Fabulation and now we have uh, Vera Stark, which was originally done the second stage some years ago. Still, if you're not, <laughs> if you haven't seen any of the other, uh, especially Fabulation, you're going to be really impressed with Lynn Nottage's attention to detail. She's one of the best around where it comes to that, and we're very lucky to have her. And I think we're very lucky to have this production, especially with Jessica Francis-Dukes. All right, Michael, what did you think? Yeah, I completely agree. I did not see the original, but I looked it up. It was done at Second Stage in 2011, uh, directed by Joe Bonney. And at that time, the cast featured Chanel Lathan as Vera Stark, Stephanie, uh, Stephanie J. Block as Gloria Mitchell. And then uh, also in the cast were Daniel Breaker, David Garrison, Kimberly Herbert Gregory, Kevin Isola, and Karen Olivo. So how's that for a cast? But this cast is excellent. Also, we have uh, 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 Jenny Barber, Manuel Felciano, Warner Miller, Cara Patterson, Heather Alicia Sims, and David Turner. I... uh, I, much has been made of the fact of, uh, you know, of course, many people know Lynn Nottage from very serious and very dark plays such as Ruined, Sweat, and uh, even Intimate Apparel is is much darker than sure. this one. Um, so what a delight uh, for those of us who've never seen one of her comedies to know that she can be such a wonderful comic playwright. I uh, I really love this. I, I knew very little about it going in, just, just the basic premise. I didn't know about all the flash forwards that were going to be happening. So those are uh, both of those were a surprise. The, the, the play theoretically takes place in three different eras. What, what, there, there, there are the scenes in 1933. Then there's the um, 1973 uh, talk show seg- segment that Peter mentioned. But then there's also this uh, segment that takes place in 2003, where a bunch of um, uh, film academics are are like uh, discussing the uh, the whole Vera Stark uh, phenomenon and 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 race in film and 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 it's very uh, it's very academic and it kind of reminded me a lot of of the postmodern. Uh, take of slave play uh which we all, we uh, mm-hmm. just saw at, yeah, at very uh, good down yeah. To, yeah yeah um so it'd be interesting to see those two uh you know one after the other maybe but um this i thought it was very very clever and it only increased my admiration for lynn nottage is really one of our best playwrights so i i i would say try try to definitely get to it i it was such a pleasant surprise for me all right so um that is by the way comma meet vera stark at the signature mm-hmm. it is playing through march 10th and we'll have oh a- and uh peter i'm sorry peter alluded i think you mentioned the film clips right yeah. I couldn't help wondering, do they have uh, multiple versions of that if there are understudies? Probably not. Because there, are, there yeah. are lots of um, close-ups in those film clips. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're <laughs> mostly close-up. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. But I wonder. Anyway. Mm. Hmm. Um, yeah. The planning for the multimedia type of thing can be uh, 
very expensive or a nightmare, or you have to just really throw in the willing suspension of disbelief there. <laughs> yes, that's probably what they do. Yeah. Uh, somebody was commenting, we had some terrible rain here a few weeks back, uh, and one night it was just about 8 p.m., and I saw Michael Dale post on Facebook. Michael Dale, the uh, chief reviewer for Broadway World, he posted on Facebook. I, I wonder what that scene uh, outside uh, of Network is going to be like when they walk down the block. I never mm. followed up to see uh, actually what had happened there, but that is uh, seemingly live. Um, and, well, I yeah. do know, actually, to answer your question, uh, James, uh, that in an early preview, it was raining one night and I heard that they, they just used umbrellas. But of course, it depends on how bad yeah, the but rain this, this was windy and driving and there was no way they could do a scene Eve walking down the block. Oh, OK. <laughs> so yeah. maybe they just started the scene in the alleyway behind the theater, you know, in, uh, in the house right of the theater. So for network, but we're getting too deep into the details there. <laughs> Let's move into um, a review of the move from downtown to 42nd Street of Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, or also called uh, a Fiddler on Dach, or <laughs> I'm unsure of the Yiddish there, but uh, they're calling it three different things on their website, so I've covered them all. But Peter, you got a chance to see this thing. How is it moved? Oh, terrific. Beyond belief. Um, it fits the stage very well. Uh, and um, maybe finally this uh, theater, which has had a hard time over the years. Uh, it was originally the Little Schubert. Um, it's no longer the Little Schubert. It's called Stage 42. I have a feeling the Schubert's wanted to uh, distance themselves from it because it was uh, considered to be a jinxed house. But... Um, uh, yesterday, when I, was, when I was going to um, Vera Stark, uh, it, uh, it's on the same street, and it was so wonderful to see so many people lined up uh, waiting to get into this production, as well as it should be. Uh, needless to say, Fiddler on the Roof is a masterpiece, and we've known that um, now for um, 54 years. And um, But this is a terrific production, and Stephen Skybell is maybe the best Tepi I ever saw, though I will confess I did not see the original Zero Marstel production. I did see him in the revival where he was fooling around and was terrible. But, um, but anyway, um, it, it's really terrific. Now, the thing I want to point out, though, is that there have been changes in the subtitles. Yes, this is in uh, Yiddish, and yes, um, you will see subtitles both in English and in Russian. So um, any of you from Russia um, who have to come over and testify about collusion, uh, why don't you spend a night at Fiddler on the Roof because you'll be able to understand what's going on by reading. So what we have here um, that's different – substantially different is that the lyrics that we um, had downtown when it was uh, at the Jewish Museum near uh, the Statue of Liberty uh, do not reflect um, the same here. Now, what I mean is that um, they were more literal translations then uh, of what actually was being said. Um, so a, a good example, the best example um, would be um, about the matchmaker. Now, um, 
you know, at the end of Matchmaker, uh, playing with matches, a girl can get burned. And I'm sorry to say that down at the Jewish Museum, you lost that joke because they gave a literal translation of what actually was being said in Yiddish. Uh, and um, that's such a wonderful turn of phrase. Well, now if you look at the, at the super titles, you will see that it is playing with matches, a girl can get burned. Uh, so a lot of the um, literal translations have not uh, stayed uh, in place. I guess somebody along the way, I don't know if it was Sheldon Harnick, the lyricist, I don't know who it was, but somebody thought it was a good idea to give people what they were used to uh, knowing in Fiddler. So that's the big change. Other than that, still a terrific production. Oh, may it run forever. I mean, it really, and once again, it shows us the quality of work um, that was going on. Um, a lot of people say that Fiddler was the last example of the golden age of the American musical. I don't think so. I think it lasted long after that. But nevertheless, it is often considered that. And seeing this production may convince you that indeed it was, because they really don't get better than Fiddler on the Roof. And Joel Gray's production is the smartest I have ever seen in mixing comedy with tragedy. I am telling you, you are laughing, and then the next moment you are not, and then you're laughing again, and then you are not. I mean, it... it of course, that's always been the case with Joe Stein's book. Of course, of course, of course. However, it seems to be pointed up here better than ever before. So um, if you're looking for scenery, no, it's not there. Um, there's very little. Beowulf Borat um, once said to me, I can do a set on $50 if I have to. This may have been one of the times when he did. So don't look for big production values. A nice uh, cast, though. Um, they spent money on the people who are in it. And uh, I'm delighted that it really happened um, to come up uh, town and uh, I am really really hoping that those crowds I saw in front of the city yes they do not diminish as time goes on uh, a lot of people uh, for example my girlfriend said you know I've seen Fiddler a lot she didn't even come with me um, when um I saw it downtown. Oh, please, Fiddler, you know, come on. And then, of course, the buzz was going on so much that she said, yes, 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 I have to see it. Ironically enough, I had an out-of-town visitor come to visit me who loves Fiddler. And I said to her, um, Linda, do you want to uh, give up your ticket for John? I mean, after all, he's come from out of town. He was coming to see my play. And uh, she said, no. No, I'm going to see this. <laughs> so I never, I never told John that he almost had a chance to see Fiddler. So, uh, but he may have many chances uh, as the years go on. I hope he does, um, because really, uh, what else can I say beyond repeating myself and saying how wonderful it is? I saw this show twice uh, down at the Museum of uh, Jewish Heritage and adored it. And I too am thrilled that it's made the transfer. And I ha have noticed, uh, I I'm, I'm seeing it later this week in the new space, but I have noticed that several reviews uh, said that they think and hope that it will break the curse of that theater. Uh, and I'm delighted, Peter, to hear about your report of the crowd waiting outside. That is such happy news. I, 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 yeah, I mean, it's so wonderful, and I hope it's there for a really long time. Uh, a little in, a quick inside baseball question, Peter. How do all the awards organizations treat this fiddler now? Because it's been spanning so many different venues over the last uh, couple of years. 
Well, I do believe that um, it will certainly be eligible and uh, will do very well in the revival category, uh, revival of the musical. Um, I'm sure that it's going to do very well there. And I'm sure that Stephen Sky Bell is going to be nominated as well. And I suspect Joel Gray will be nominated for director, um, be it the Lucille Hotel Awards, which only concentrate on Off-Broadway, or the Drama Desk Awards, which do both Broadway and Off-Broadway. But I think there'll be room for this one, uh, for those three categories at the very least. But the uh, production didn't start before last year at the Heritage? No, no, it was oh, in it July. Oh, it didn't? Okay. Oh, yeah. great, great. So it didn't yeah. span more than one season. Okay, that was no, my question. No, okay. yeah, yeah. I thought that's what you meant. Yeah. All right. So, Michael, you got over to the uh, Mint Theater Company production of The Price of Thomas Scott down at uh, Theater Row in the Beckett Theater. So tell us about this. Yes, this is part of a series that Mint is currently presenting called Meet Miss Baker. That's the umbrella title. And uh, the Miss Baker in question is a playwright named Elizabeth Baker, a British playwright uh, in the early years of the 20th century. And that is where – when and where this – play is set uh, in London in the back parlor of Thomas Scott's shop. And uh, maybe I can just read um, the first couple of paragraphs of my review for Talkin' Broadway, uh, which is, um, quote unquote, it's footloose except John Lithgow wins. Uh, So this is my, this is how I started my review. But uh, some people felt it was a spoiler, but I just thought that this um the emphasis in this uh, play is not on actually what happens so much as how it happens because uh, what you have here is the situation of this fellow who uh uh he owns a shop in london and he has received an offer uh for the shop to be purchased at a very very high price 500 pounds which was an enormous amount of money in the early 20th century but he um He's hesitating to sell the shop because the company that wants to buy it wants to uh, make it into a dance hall. And Thomas Scott is um, very much against dancing, Uh, I guess for a lot of the same reasons why John Lithgow, (laughs) the John Lithgow character – in the movie Footloose is against dancing. Uh, but he's also against uh, – Thomas Scott is also against uh, theater. He doesn't like theater and actors. So he's he's kind of a um, an uptight fellow. Uh, and so the, um, the action of the play is, uh, you know, this debate over uh, whether he is a good person just for holding uh, – true to his integrity and his convictions or you know if he's just this uh you know this this ultra conservative uh, prig uh you know who is stuck in the past and it's so interesting to see his interactions with his family and his uh, his friends and and how they all how they all uh, view this and how they debate it um this is an excellent cast. Uh, let's see. We have Donald Corrin as Thomas Scott. Oh. Uh, yes. Tracy Sallows, Emma Gear, Nicola Medica, Mark Kenneth Smaltz, Jay Russell, Andrew Fales, Josh Goulding, Mitch Greenberg, Ayanna Workman, and Ariel Yoder, directed by Jonathan Bank, who is the artistic director of The Mint, uh, and who always does such a wonderful job. Um, I. This is what I wrote about um, 
Donald Corrin. As directed by Mint Artistic Director Jonathan Bank, the marvelous actor Donald Corrin has wisely decided to play Thomas Scott not as a sour, dyspeptic prig, but rather as an almost jovial fellow who seems quite happy in life and is 100% sincere in his conviction or prejudice that dancing is bad. To interpret the role as grimly judgmental throughout the proceedings would have likely made for a usually boring performance, but Corrin is far too skillful and intelligent an actor to have fallen into that trap. His outward jollity makes for nuanced and complex interactions with the rest of the excellent actors in the company, especially Sallow as his spouse and Gear and Lamedica as his progeny. It's obvious that Scott's family loves him and admires him, even if in some ways he exasperates them. So uh, the point being that uh, you might disagree with him, but at least he, 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 he seems sincere. Uh, you know, he, he is being offered a lot of money for this shop and many other people uh, would throw their convictions aside and just say, let me take the money and run. But he doesn't do that. So uh, so it, it's an it's an interesting situation when we uh, you know, when we see people who hold convictions that are very different from ours and when we argue with them uh, just to see how that plays out and, and see how sincere they are or aren't. Um, I'm sure we can all think of many, many examples of people in power, including a lot of politicians who are such hypocrites. Uh, but that is not the case with Thomas Scott here. So I think on some level you have to admire him, even if you're like, hey, grandpa, get with the program. There's nothing wrong with dancing. <laughs> All right, so that is um, the Mint Theater Company's production of The Price of Thomas Scott, and it is playing through March 23rd. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter, you got down to the Connolly Theater where you saw uh, a play called Maverick, which is about Orson Welles. So tell us about Maverick. Well, it's not only about Orson Welles, but um, it's it's also <laughs> about uh, Fred Beecham, uh, who was um, a somebody who worked with Wells late in his career. And what this play is about is the fact that even, well, let's put it this way. Orson Wells always said, you only need one. You only need one smash hit uh, to make your reputation and uh, make money for you and so on and so forth. And obviously he had that very early in his career, uh, in his film career with Citizen Kane. He had it in his radio career with the War of the Worlds where he, uh, made people believe Martians had come down to Earth and were going to destroy us all. And uh, also, for that matter, he um, certainly had more than one um, involving uh, theater, with, especially with the Cradle of Rock, um, which really uh, also helped to put him on the map. But you don't only need one. That's what the point of this play is, that as time went on, Orson Welles really uh, fooled around with his life. And um, some of it had to do with the fact that the studios had different ideas of what uh, his um, work should be. And there's some talk about the Magnificent Ambersons, about how he had a very different ending mm. for the Magnificent Ambersons. But it was wartime, and the um, the studio felt the nation needed a lift rather than discouraging ending to the film. So there's talk about that, too. So whether or not Orson Welles was It's My Way or the Highway, uh, or it's 
the highway, if it's not the highway, then it's the low way. Um, <clears throat> he finds himself really boxed in tremendously as time goes on, and the office are not forthcoming anymore. So he does find this man who does admire him and is going to do everything he can to make his newest project happen. But Orson Welles does not make it easy for him at all. There's also a fascinating sequence where he meets Steven Spielberg. And what happens after he meets Steven Spielberg is really something because Steven Spielberg, after all, <laughs> needless to say, uh, knows his film history. And meeting Orson Welles is going to be a thrill, even if it's this point in his career. But how long does it stay a thrill? So that's pretty impressive. They are looking for money for this project. And one of the most amazing moments in this play occurs when they find out that the sled the rosebud sled from Citizen Kane has been sold for $75,000. Oh, could they have used that money? And the look on the actress, and not just the actor, but also the co-writer. The two people who play um, uh, Beecham and Orson Welles wrote the play. Um, so um, so it's uh, Stephen Pilkington, um, sorry, Frank Beecham and George Demas. Um, so uh, are the writers. And really pretty impressive to see this happen. And um, it's down at the Connolly Theater on East 4th Street. Not an easy place to get to, uh, I will admit. Um, but I think it's worth going there to see this, especially if you have any interest in, in film history. Because Orson Welles is so frustrated at what's going on. And at the end of the play, he has such an explosion that you don't see coming. Even though he's been difficult, he's been diplomatically difficult. But that ends as time goes on. So, um, you know, I'm looking at the press release, and I think there's a mistake. Because it does say, uh, a world premiere play written by Frank Beecham and George Demas. But I, I believe it's Stephen Pilkington. So I'm going to correct myself here based on what I'm looking at. Um, so... Uh, because Beecham is the name of the character, but they do have it here as a co-writer. So um, I will apologize for that, but um, it is um, uh, a problem with the press release. By the way, also showing up in this show <laughs> are Merv Griffin, Zsa, Zsa Gabor, and Robin Leach, if you remember him from Lifestyles of the Rich and <laughs> Famous. So, uh, so, you know, because we are dealing with that period of time. And one of the most poignant things that happens at the beginning of the play is when somebody uh, – when, when Beecham mentions Orson Welles. Uh, to somebody in the guys, oh, oh, the wine guy, the guy who does the wine commercials, because he was doing those um, to make a buck. And um, for, to think that the, the, the auteur of Citizen Kane should be thought of as the guy who does wine commercials does show that flame is fame is fleeting. So, um, so yeah, really a, a pretty good, um, pretty good play. An hour and 50 minutes with an intermission. You'll be out soon. Uh, and um, get down there. That's great to hear. I know Frank uh, through another friend. I've known Frank for 15 years or so. All right, so, he, so. so yeah. Frank is... The son. Frank, the son of... Um, yeah. Okay. 
Uh, yeah. It's just so confusing to me here. No, but no, anyway. absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I saw that uh, press release. I took a look at that press release. Okay. And, and I agree with you. It's it's uh, probably needs to be uh, another rewriter. So maybe uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe when they move, they'll uh, rewrite that press release. I hope they do. Uh, so, Peter, you got uh, to the Abington, Abington Theater to see, uh, was it the Barrow Group's uh, production of Random Backs? I don't think it was. It may have been, but I, I think this is simply a rental. Um, okay. And um, and I am purposely not going to say much about this because what happens in this play, uh, Random Acts, which is actually a one-person show, I should point out, um, is the fact that um, the person who performs it and writes it, Renata Hinrich, H-I-N-R-I-C-H-S, um, talks about being in high school. And the boy next to her in chemistry class um, sort of indicates that uh, he's interested in her and she's interested in him. And it looks like they're going to have a, a, a cute little high school romance there. And so everything's going along very well. And five minutes into the play, you are hit with information that really surprises you, that tells you a lot about both people. And that's as much as I'm going to say in terms of this plot, because it does involve such a surprise. Uh, Renata Hinrich, by the way, um, looks – I'm going to solve you solve the problem for you when you sit there and say, who does this woman remind me of? Who does she look like? It took me about 10 minutes before I realized that she really looks so much like Karen Ziemba, so much that um, I'd like to see them both do sideshow together. And, uh, well, I guess we wouldn't know who is who, but they're always together, so it doesn't matter. Uh, very talented woman, really gives her all on the stage, um, certainly uh, loves what she's doing. And the play, um, I hope I'm not making it sound like a comedy because it does sound sort of like one with these, um, with the high school romance thing. But no, it, it really does pack a punch. And, um, and you're really very, very taken with the fact that when you find out exactly what's going on here, that you say, ooh, that never occurred to me. And it's wonderful that it never occurred to me. It's wonderful it never occurred to Renata or her boyfriend. Uh, I, I know I know I'm not helpful because <laughs> I don't want to give anything away. Just get down to 312 West 36th Street and see this remarkable woman in this remarkable performance and a beautiful piece of writing too. All right. So I, what my confusion about the Barrow Group was that uh, – Sure. This production is listed as the Barrow Group's main stage, okay. so I, I'm not sure it, if the complex is still called the Abington Theater. Yes, but... yeah, yes, okay, yes, That's yeah, Abington, A B I N G D O N, D O N, yeah, Abington. All right. Uh, so finally, wrapping up this morning, uh, let's uh, flash forward into the future here, Michael. You are going to be directing a one-act play in Staten Island. Uh, uh, part of a f uh, group of things called Scenes from the Staten Island Ferry. So tell us about this. Oh, it's not actually the future. It opened last night. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's your time machine. <laughs> yes, Doctor Who. Very merrily we roll along. Uh, and uh, yeah, and we have performances today and next weekend. This is Scenes from the Staten Island Ferry. Uh, this series has been going on for 17 years, I believe. And it's an uh, evening of short plays, all of which are set on the Staten Island Ferry. Uh, I think in the early days of the series, they actually uh, did that whole thing where uh, they made the writers – 
write them on the ferry. <laughs> they, you know, it was like that, that yeah, that very gimmick. Uh, I had another um, friend who once had a group that did that with the the subway and called it the A-train planes. Yeah, the A-train planes, yeah. Yeah, do you remember those? Yeah, yeah. oh yeah. I had some yeah, friends so, that did that. Yeah, so similar, similar situation here. And uh, I have a friend who recommended me uh, to direct – a short one of these short plays and I thought it would be great because I haven't directed in a while and I thought if I'm going to get back into it it'd be nice to start on a, a small scale like that so I, I did hesitate a little bit because it's interesting I because of the submission process and the and the process of choosing the plays and the casting uh, I didn't participate in any of that I didn't get to pick the play that I would be directing nor did I uh, um, get to cast it uh, the two people who were in it so I, I did hesitate but I thought well you know I, let, let me try and see how it goes and I got very very lucky because the play is called Call Back on the Staten Island Ferry by Karen Fix Curry and the actors are Sarah Di Pasquale as Victoria and Alan Forster as Liam and the situation here is that uh, Victoria is on the ferry and she has just had a very big audition in the city and she is waiting to hear if she got the part. And she's very, very, you know, understandably anxious about that. And this fellow comes in um, who happens to be a British fellow and he sits there and he sees that she's very upset because she starts crying actually at one point and he asks her what's going on and she explains um, – and she's just really waiting for this call, and he's trying to comfort her and saying, uh, "Well, you know, um, you, you got to, you got, you got this wonderful opportunity, and and uh, and you're going to get that call soon, either way. So you have to be prepared." And so then the call comes in. Now, the uh, this year uh, there's an extra gimmick of the the scenes from the Staten Island Ferry. And that is that the audience picks the ending of each play. Uh, every playwright had to write two endings for, for each of the plays. Uh, and then the audience votes by applause, which they want to happen. So in this case, you have to vote whether the phone call tells Victoria that she got the part, uh, in which case she's going to head right back, uh, you know, to Manhattan and go and sign up at the agency that sent her. Uh, and or if alternatively she did not get the part, in which case she uh, is telling Liam that she's going to go back to Staten Island and pack up uh, all of her bags because she's been house sitting for a friend and she's going to pack up and, and leave New York and not be an actress anymore. So um, that is the uh, the decision here. And it's uh, uh, for the first performance you you might not be surprised to hear that the, the audience chose uh that they wanted to see what happens if she gets the part uh, so that was really nice uh other plays uh uh in this uh, in this evening have you know in interesting alternatives there's one about a uh called sunset cruise and it's about a concert violinist who has just unfortunately um, given a performance uh at i think carnegie hall or avery fisher that she uh is really not happy with and she's so unhappy that she brings her stradivarius onto the ferry and she's uh planning to throw it into the water 
and destroy it. Uh, but then her, uh, I think it's her manager shows up and tries to talk her out of that. So the audience in that case has to decide whether she uh, throws the violin over the side of the ferry <laughs> and destroys it or decides to keep it. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's good to, um, to have the audience uh, be interactive in that way. I, I like Peter, I have mixed feelings about audience interactivity, but I think something like this, where you're just asking them to vote, uh, is, is really good. Cause it gets, you know, it, it, it invests the audience even more into the action and the characters. And I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, all of the uh, all of the other plays uh, and mine, I, I was really surprised, very pleasantly surprised overall with the quality of the writing. Uh, apparently they get, uh, plays submitted from all over the country, like hundreds of plays for this short play uh, series. And I guess, uh, you know, partly because maybe there aren't that many outlets for short plays to be performed. Obviously, they have to be gathered together. You can't just do, you know, one 15-minute play in an evening. Uh, So I think maybe that's why. And it's a very smart idea that they've had. And as I say, it's been going on for 17 years or so, and I and I hope it continues. And I'm very glad to be involved. I, it's really been fun for me. All right. So uh, that is Callback on the Staten Island Ferry by Karen Fix-Curry, uh, directed by Michael Portantier. <laughs> so uh, before we head on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayVideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Hopefully. We've had some server issues this week, so uh, but I think Uh-oh. everything's back on track. Broadway Stars yeah. is still down, but Broadway Stars should be up uh, later this week. Um, contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me can be found at the show notes or bro- at broadwayradio.com, as well as uh, links to some of the things we've talked about today. And we actually have in the Merrily, have a little uh, one-minute video uh, from uh, Mr. Sondheim talking about uh, the, the music that he's written. So check that out as well. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Well, uh, the question was, uh, during the 1960 S&H Green Stamps, which people collected and redeemed for prizes, were big, to the point of which uh, they were mentioned in two musicals in the 60s. While the composers and lyricists sought the two specific musicals from which the songs came not win Tony as best musical, they now have two Tony-winning musicals to their credit. What are the shows, the songs, who are the composers and lyricists, and what were their Tony-winning musicals? Uh, again, Tony Janicki is really coming on strong since he's discovered these podcasts. He's uh, been a whiz, and he's the only one to get it. Um, so I'll, I'm going to quote exactly what he wrote. Um, Jerry Herman wrote the music and lyrics for two shows that won the best musical Tony, Hello, Dolly in 64, La Casha Fall in 84. In 61, Herman also wrote the music and lyrics for Milk and Honey. Uh, His delightful song, Hymn to Jaime, had Jewish widow Clara Weiss lamenting that since her husband passed away, the grocer gives her a sympathetic look as he pastes a single stamp into her green stamp book. Okay. The other one, the team of Charles Strauss and Lee Adams provided the score for two best musical winners, Bye Bye Birdie and Applause. However, in 66, they provided the score for It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. Uh, their song, What I've Always Wanted, had Lois Lane wistfully yearning for a dogwood tree, the A.M.P. conformity, and green stamps in a book. So that's the answer to the question. And again, we'll see how Tony does with this one. All right. After he finished filming one of the most controversial movies of the 60s, 
He was scheduled to play the lead in a musical, one that would become more famous for launching the career of a young woman who played a supporting role. I'm not just asking you who he is or what the film and the musical is. I want you to tell me the names of three other performers who appeared in the film. One became one of Broadway's most valuable performers. One appeared in a 50s film musical that used most everyone from the original cast, but she was one of the new performers. Finally, the third one appeared in more than one film version of Broadway musicals and almost did one that was recently revived on Broadway. So who are these three people, too? All right. <laughs> okay. Take that, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you have an answer to that, uh, Tony, or otherwise, email us at um, trivia at broadwayradio.com. Let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.